Hello and welcome to the ARC Podcast. I'm Adam. And I'm Joy. And today we had a special guest, Tyndale author Chris Fabry. And Chris is an award-winning author and radio personality. He hosts the daily program Chris Fabry Live on Moody Radio. We encourage you to tune in each afternoon. He's written more than 70 books for children and adults. And his novels, which include Dogwood, Junebug, Almost Heaven, and Not in the Heart, have won three Christie Awards, an ECPA Christian Book Award, and a Christianity Today Award of Merit. Um, but as we all know, it's his lyrical prose and tales of redemption that keep readers returning for more. He was an excellent guest, especially since he's a radio host and he had a really good microphone on his end, so mm-hmm. you'll, you'll tell right away that uh, the, the quality of the sound is really great plus he's a a talented speaker Um, having a radio program every day was a pleasure to interview him Mm -hmm. so like he should have been interviewing us (laughs) absolutely yes so we think we'll enjoy it we do talk about his most recent novel uh the promise of jesse woods so we hope you enjoy and uh be sure to check out his new book at his website chrisfabry.com or at tyndale.com and let's get to the interview So the first question we had for you, Chris, is if you can tell us a little bit about your background and then how you came to be a radio host and writer. I grew up in West Virginia. I grew up in Dogwood. I write a lot about Dogwood. And uh, in high school, a teacher came to me and said, would you like to work at a radio station? And I had been, you know, writing songs and stories and little things, you know, creative things since I was a kid and I had a CB radio. But this seemed to me like, wow, that'd be a really good idea. So I started working at this little 5,000-watt country and western radio station in Milton, <laughs> West Virginia. And I did, yeah, I learned everything. And my, my station manager said, uh, Nasib S. Tweel was his name. And the, <laughs> the call letters were after his last, or, you know, his full name, W-N-S-T. So Sieb said to me, Fabry, if you get this in your blood, it'll always be there. And he was right. I've been basically doing the same thing that I did have done in radio the rest of my life. I went on and did a little bit of TV news because I started, studied broadcast journalism at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. Graduated from there. I had been married for six months when Andrea and I both felt like, you know, other people can, can do the, you know, the journalism thing here in town. We don't need to do that. There's something else. So we came to Moody Bible Institute studied there for a year, thought we'd go into missions in some way, and we really have. We started our own tribe and have been evangelizing them ever since. We've got nine children. No. Um, yes. So, you know, the, the radio thing kind of grew out of that, me getting involved with Moody Broadcasting at the time, now Moody Radio. And then I started interviewing people like uh, Jeanette Oak and Francine Rivers and Frank Peretti and Jerry Jenkins and I'd had this latent, you know, writing thing that I wanted to do. And I just got a chance to ask them, uh, hey, how do you send a query letter? How do you do this publishing thing? And Jerry said, I'll, I'll help you if you want. It'll be painful, but I, I can help you. And he did. And that when my, my first book was published in 1995. And now 70-some books later, here we are. Wow. And you started off 
was it the the children's was it the children's left behind series was that your first actually, actually that was in 98 my okay. first book was called spiritually correct bedtime stories the second book was away with the manger about uh, the christmas wars and then we did the 77 habits of highly ineffective christians so i did a lot of kind of humor satire in the <laughs> early days and then kind of moved into Christian living, family, and then into the, the Left Behind Kids. And Jerry and I did 55 children's books together. <laughs> it was just kind of hard to say and believe, but it's true. That's um, incredible. So uh, when you started writing uh, more adult fiction, what was that transition like for you going from writing for kids to, uh, to adults? I always had wanted to write adult fiction because I had been so moved by uh, fiction for adults. But I knew that uh, my agent at the time, Kathy Helmers, said, look, Chris, for any publisher to take a chance on you in doing this, you've got to finish the book. You've got to write the whole thing and send it to them because they know that you can tell a story with the kids stuff, but they don't know if you can you know, pull this off. So I wrote the manuscript for the book that is now known as Dogwood. I wrote the whole thing beginning to end, and it took several years because what I'd do is I'd, I'd finish a Left Behind Kids book, and then I'd work for a week on Dogwood, and I'd come back to the next Left Behind Kids book, you know, and I'd <laughs> I'll do all the other things, just like everybody else does. It was, so writing was something that I did every day, but my adult fiction I had to kind of put on the, on the shelf. And so I sent that, I sent Dogwood to, I think, five publishers, and everybody, four of them got back to me and kind of patted me on the head and said, oh, you know, it's a good, good try, nice try. But Tyndale, uh, I, can, I can take you to the, the spot on the interstate when I was driving back from Indianapolis to uh, Colorado. My son and I had gone and we were interviewing Tony Dungy. It was when Tony's uh, Uncommon book, I think it came out. We were doing some interviews. And I can take you to the spot in the gas station where I pulled over where Kathy called me and said, Chris... Tyndale likes Dogwood. They really want to publish this. And it was just like, ah, oh, this dream that I always had about writing this story, it's going to come true. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but there you go. It certainly does. And it sounds like, like you alluded to, you've written a lot about Dogwood. It's a setting, you know, for your latest book, The Secret of Jesse Woods. Is that an inspirational place for you? What, what's the reason that you set a lot of your novels there? Rod Dreher is a, is a, an author who lives down in Louisiana, and he has written for uh, he's written a lot. And um, he said to me, "It's just when I write about where I'm from, everything comes alive. I know it. You know, I I don't have to try to figure out what the air feels like or you know what the smells are down in in Louisiana. And it's the same thing for me." Uh, I've written from where I live in Arizona. I've written in about Chicago. I've written, you know, different places, South Carolina, Florida. But it's when I come home that I feel like I have the power. And my kids said something about um, Jesse Woods. They, my kids read, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that I write. And now they're older. And they've all said there's something about this that feels like there is a deeper connection, that you're being as authentic as you can be, you know, you're telling kind of your own story. And I think when, uh, I've got this thing next to my writing desk that talks about, uh, write hard and clear about what hurts and then don't avoid it. It has all the energy. 
I think that there's something about where you grew up, where you um, spent those formative years that really taps into the, the real feelings, the real pain, the real joy that you have, too. Um, and, and you can, as you mind that, then people will, even if they're not from there, especially if they're not from there, they feel like they can, they can sense this story because you're telling it from, you know, yourself. So that, that's kind of why I keep going back. Sure. Yeah, Adam and I were both wondering, you know, before we started our conversation, the title, Dog, what of your first book? And then we found out that this one was set there. So we thought we'd ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you, uh, do you get to visit West Virginia much? Since you I do. Put- my mom is still there. Yeah, my mom is 89, and I just went back and gave her the advanced reader copy of the book and then, you know, sent her a big box because she loves to send it to all of her uh, relatives and family around there. And uh, so when I go back, it's just like, you know, taking a dip in, in the pool of your childhood because the, uh, you know, I live in Arizona now, so all I see is rattlesnakes and saguaro cactus and, you know, roadrunners. Uh, you go back to West Virginia and everything is green, everything, especially this time of year in the summer where the, when the, the, the book is set, everything is just uh, just growing and, and uh, covered. You know, the whole ground is covered with all of the, the flowers and the trees and everything. And I don't experience that here. The air is very heavy and wet, like a blanket over top of you. And as a kid, I remembered riding bikes and just the sweat streaming down, you know, and, and the the um, uh, dust from the the road that kind of caked on you, and <laughs> the mosquitoes and the flies. And there's a story that opens the book that really happened to me. It's a story about this horse that I, uh, my brother is eight years older than me, and his his friend Bud were. I was riding bikes with them. I couldn't keep up with them. And I saw this horse standing beside the road, and it was like, why is that horse just standing there? So I parked my bike, and I crawled up on the on the berm of the road, and I saw that he was caught in this barbed wire. Mm. And I, you know, yelled at my brother. And now this is my version of the story. It's been forty some years, so I have no idea if this is really what it is. This is how I remember it. And uh, they came back, and the horse, the barbed wire, was totally wrapped around this horse's leg, and it was standing there. And uh, we all agreed we got to save this horse. We've got to rescue this horse. And so they went back, got wire cutters, came back, snipped the wire on both sides, unwound it, and the horse walked away and lived. And the uh, Vessi, who was the guy who owned that farm, we always expected that he would come back and give us this big reward. It's been 45 years. We're still waiting. Uh, (laughs) But but that scene, that idea of we got to save that horse informed the beginning of this book and when Matt, who moves into Dogwood, meets Jesse, this wild uh, force of nature in, in his life. And uh, that, that's, that's how that scene came about. Mm, sure. And that, that's a great segue into if you could share the storyline and maybe some of the themes of this book for us. The, one of the big themes is we make lousy saviors. Because the book is told in dual time frames. It's told in 1984 and 1972. And I believe that we all have a pivotal year of our lives. And 72 was really big for me. So uh, Matt is uh, in his mid-20s in 1984. And he hears that Jesse is getting married. And 
he hears also who Jesse's getting married to. So he goes back to rescue Jesse from this big mistake that she is making. And that's how the, the story begins. And then you go back to 1972, you see them meet each other. You also see the third strand of that chord, Dickie Darylee. And he's an African-American kid uh, living in West Virginia. And that is a knapsack full of rocks for any kid to live in West Virginia in this little mm -hmm. in, impoverished town. But being an African-American who has a white mom and a, an African-American dad who's in the military, who's serving in Vietnam, I mean, it's all just, it's a really hard existence. And that's why these three find each other. Matt is the outsider. Dickie Darylee is African-American. And Jesse is in the family that is basically the poorest in, in town. She's the family that is um, compared to anybody who has a problem well, we can say at least we're better off than the Woods family. Hmm. And uh, what I found is everybody in a small town has that one family that you always look to and say, well, it's, at least we got it better than they do. And what you don't understand is even in, amidst the poverty, there is this relationship and there's this hard scrabble attitude of life that really informs you know, that person and that family that makes them kind of come alive and, and say... You know, I know I got it bad here and got dealt a you know, bad hand, but I'm going to do something with my life. I'm going to make something of my life. So you get to see a, a peek in on that. And Matt has never experienced that. So you have, you know, lousy, we all make lousy saviors is a is a theme that runs through there. This the misfits, the coming of age, the secrets that we the promises that we make that we can't keep. Jesse makes a promise that she can't keep later on because of another promise and Matt has no idea he's coming back and thinking I wonder why Jesse said no to me I wonder why this never worked out between us and he doesn't know the full story so the uh, the ticking clock is Matt has until Saturday to talk Jesse down from the ledge of marriage you know and so you see that going on in that week in 1984 but you also see everything that happened back then and you get a new perspective on it um, and I think that's one of those things that that we all have to do. We, we Our present is informed by our past and how much we have dealt with it or not dealt with it. And some of the, the secrets that we kind of hang on to back there, th there's more to it than we realize, than we understand. Uh, so those are some of the things I was trying to deal with. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it, it must be really neat as an author to parallel some of the moments in your own life and I'm sure, as we've talked to other authors, it, it's a personal thing, even a, a fictional story rather than autobiography or memoir, because there are themes in your own life that you're able to work out with other characters. Right. Well, and one of those was I grew up as a uh, the son of a mom who knew how to bake sweets. She baked these brownies with fistfuls of walnuts in them, and she had this carrot cake that I could just say it, and I gained weight. <laughs> Christmas time, it was this fudge and peanut butter balls, and she was just, she made this chicken and rice dish that the chicken just fell off the bone, and the rice, and the pimentos that were, oh, you know, I could, I could bring this back, but as a kid growing up, uh, I kind of gravitated toward her food, you know, and so I gained weight. And I was this roly-poly little thing <laughs> running around, the, you know, sweating. That's why I was sweating so much. I couldn't keep up with my brothers. 
And so I dealt with the, the pain of being fat as a kid in West Virginia and the uh, humiliation that comes when your mother takes you to the store to buy new clothes for the new school year and the husky clothes don't fit anymore. And you got to go over to the men's section and the woman leading you saying is saying, how old is he? And this feeling of abject of objectification, <laughs> mm -hmm. if I can use that word, you're, you're not being treated as a human being. You're treated as an object. How old is it really? How old is he? And how much does he weigh? And, and in the book, I use the, <laughs> I use the line. I can't remember if the lady said this in the, in the store, but uh, I have her saying in the, in the book, somebody needs to lay off the gravy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, th those emotional things that are going on inside of you that you really can't tell anybody about because my mom was dealing with some depression in her life and some situations that I had no idea. And she was putting this all into her baking and her, and she gained a lot of weight too. So, you know, there's, there's these emotional issues that, that are going on that kind of leak in through the book and you see Matt dealing with as well as the other characters. Mm, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. Now we have a, a lot of writers, aspiring writers uh, that listen to our show and there's a lot of uh, fiction fans who are aspiring writers. And you kind of have these two, almost two separate writing careers where you've got your novels, but then you're also... Um, asked to team up a lot with some public figures like my personal favorite since I'm from Ohio, Jim Trussell, or uh, people like Drew Brees, or more recently some of these movie uh, book adaptations. How, do you approach these two things differently? Um, like, do you feel more freedom with your own work, or is there more pressure because it's all you, as opposed mm -hmm. to some of these other projects where you're kind of a hired gun? Yes, <laughs> I like that. I hired word gun. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting when I worked on War Room and before that I worked on the song, the, the novelization of both of those films. I thought it was going to be the most uncreative thing I've ever done. I'm taking a script and I'm making it into a novel. And it's like, how how in the world is this going to you know, it's going to be dreary. It's going to be drudgery. Well, what happened was I realized that the filmmakers, the scriptwriter, basically had set the fence line all the way around the story and, and turned me loose in the pasture. And for War Room example, as an example, Clara is, uh, is an older woman and she's selling her house and she's got this uh, other woman, Elizabeth, who comes into her life. And so you see all of the, the drama that comes out there and... and as I started to write this, I started to think, well, wait a minute, Clara, I got an old mom. She's 89. She's not, she's not moving out of that house. Why is Clara selling her house? Why, why would an older woman want to sell her house? What's going on here? What's the relationship between her and her son? You see a little bit of it in the movie, but what about her and her, her granddaughter or any other, you know, extended family? So it's like the Kendrick brothers and, and the folks who wrote the song, they said, you know, take off, ask these questions, go. And I found it to be really, really liberating and so creative because I can be creative with the uh, limitations of the, the choices that they've already made. So in answer to your question, what that's done in my own writing is I'm starting to write a new novel and I got all these ideas. I've got, you know, characters that I really want to do, but I don't have all of the fence line that I had with those, uh, you know, the war room and the song. 
and I'm looking for the fence line. I want to find this before I start so that I can play again, and I'm having a hard time getting started because I don't have all of the answers to all of these questions, and I know that you know it's going to come. Um, I find that writing with, let's say, a Drew Brees or a Jim Trestle um, – kind of frees me up i don't have to i don't have to make any of this up all i got to do is tell the story basically what i have to do with them is i need to get out of the way Mm -hmm. and i let need to let them speak so that's a you know an art in itself with the novelizations of films i need to do the same thing but it's at the same time be creative and come up with you know questions and answers to those questions uh given by the kendricks and others and then with my own stuff there is this you know this weight of what am I what am I trying to do? What story am I really trying to tell here? Whose perspective am I going to whose mind am I going to get into or you know who am I going to follow here? Is it going to be 10 characters or just one or two or three? So there is a certain pressure that comes with that, but it's part of the territory. You know, it's it's part of the creative process that I just love to do that I feel like I was made to do. Mm. It does seem Chris, like you were made to do it. I mean, your life career is telling stories, both ones that you come up with creatively and then also those that people share with you. So how do, how have you um, honed that skill? And then also I might ask, how have you seen more of God and his character? Because of course he has written the story of history. We have it in his, his word. And then he also really valued the stories of people. You know, what's coming to mind right now is the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. And um, he cared for her enough as a human being to hear her story and then also offer himself as, you know, the transformation of that story. Yes. Yeah, that's good. The, the, the I will take you to the, uh, you know, I could take you to the spot on the interstate. I can take you to the little kitchen slash uh, dining room of my grandmother's house where they never had a telephone and my two old, my uncles lived with my grandmother and my mom would take me to their house and we just show up. You never, you never ask permission. You just show up, knock on the door and you walk in. (laughs) And I can still remember, I close my eyes. I can still remember my uncles smoking their, their pell-mells, the, the, the grease, of the dinner hanging heavy in the air for my grandmother who had made dinner that night. My uncles leaning down with their elbows on their knees, sitting at the kitchen table and telling stories from their childhood. Now they grew up in abject poverty. It was just, but the stories that they had, the the stories that they told about themselves, there's one particular one about my uncle Pooch, whose name was Howard, my middle name is Howard, was named after him, Uncle Pooch, but everybody knew him as Pooch. Pooch uh, went out uh, possum hunting with Fred McAllister and got, because Fred had a dog. They didn't have a gun. It was, it was in the Depression. So they had to basically bag the possum and skin the possum, and they'd eat the, the meat and then sell the hide. And so he, I won't go into the story. It's too long to tell. But I, th- this is where the stories came from. And I say a good storyteller knows how to listen. And so I never talked. I'd ask questions sometimes of, of those stories that my uncles told. But it was all listening. It was drinking in these stories. And every time I'd go down, tell the story about when you went hunting, Uncle Pooch. 
and he'd tell it. And it would sometimes be shorter, sometimes longer, but you'd sit and you would listen and you'd learn, ah, this is how stories go together. So I basically do the same thing on the radio every day. I'm just asking people to tell their stories, whether it's an author or just people who are calling in. And I think that's the same thing that God does with you and me. Our story is this linear process. As I'm writing the story, Jesse's story, I look at my own life and I say, wow, this is, God did the same thing in me that he's doing in Matt or in Jesse with these, some of these big questions. It mirrors, these stories mirror so much of my own life experience and losses that I've seen and relationships that have been severed or not, you know, places where I've become humble and and said, please forgive me, and other places where I've been stiff-necked. And, you know, God just is, that's why I think I love telling these kinds of stories, is because a nonfiction book is right there in front of you, and it's propositional truth, and it's didactic, you know, it's teaching us about life, and, and that's what the Bible does, too. You read it, and you're seeing these things, but stories get around to the back door of your heart and knock there without you really understanding that, you know, you're hearing this still small voice. And then you open that door to that and you climb into that story. Uh, to Kill Mockingbird is my, one of my favorites because I read, it was the first story that I ever read that I felt like I was right there with Scout and Jim and Dill and Atticus mm-hmm. and Calpurnia and all. I was right there in that. But I didn't understand at the age that I read it. I didn't understand what was going on. Mm. But I crawled into that book, and I crawled in, into their skin, and I walked around with them. That's what a good novel will do. It'll let you crawl around in that, you know, in that story, in that universe, in those characters, so that you then see your own life. You, you read your own life through these stories. Mm. And the Bible does it the best, because when you read the Bible, it's reading you. Mm. you know, it's reading your own heart. Uh, so that's kind of a long, circuitous answer to, <laughs> to your question, but it's, I think it's true. I think it is too, Chris. You say it very well. And I I tend to draw towards nonfiction books to see, okay, what are the three steps that will yes. lead me to this new thing? But what I've found is I've started to read more fiction lately, that it, it actually goes around, like you said, to the back door of the heart and helps me notice things that I didn't realize were there. And it enables me to live out some of those emotions through another character that somehow feels a little bit more safe and yes. soft versus, you know, the examining of the heart with a, a more didactic approach. Yes. No, I love that. And, and Walt Wongren, I love Walt Wongren's writing and what he talks about one time when his daughter was really scared of something or was having a, a struggle and he pulled her up on his lap and he pulled this book out, he pulled this story out and he said, her heart is as close to mine as it can be, but we're not looking at each other. I'm not trying to explain anything to her. I'm just telling her this story that's here on the page. <laughs> and by, by being able to look at this thing, you know, out here or kids who've had uh, some kind of abuse in the background and can't talk about that, can't process it. A lot of times you'll get an inanimate object, you know, a doll or something, and that child can tell the counselor uh, their own life through this thing out here, through this teddy bear, whatever it is. And I think that's very much what a story does. It makes it, like you said, safe to go there, and then the emotions can bubble up and you can realize, hey, this is happening to me. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you have a book in your future 
about a family that has nine kids. Because <laughs> I, I have one three-year-old, and I would be very much interested in reading that story. <laughs> you know, a lot of there have been a lot of books written about you know uh, big families. Uh, I don't I don't know if I could tell it. <laughs> Uh, adequately because you get so many you got to keep all of these you know people in your mind I'd have mm -hmm. to I'd have to make it so specific with them I, I find it easier to make the family small so you can keep all these characters in your head yeah. and then to go you know in depth <laughs> into each of the each of the personalities because that's the surprising thing do we got nine kids and you think well they're all going to be alike or this and all nine of them have these a specific personality quirks yeah. and traits you know some one looks like another and and uh you know this one and that one get along well and this one and that one don't but they all have are so unique mm -hmm. you know in their in their makeup and uh so maybe one day one day we'll get the the uh the family together yes it might have to be a long book i mean you think about the depth and the the numbers of stories per child and then as right. a family <laughs> Yeah, you could do you could do a series out of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm open to it. I'll co-write it with both of you. Yeah, okay. okay. There you go. <laughs> um, Chris, we're coming upon the end of our time. Um, is there anything you'd like to share more about your book or for, you know, our audience who just loves, you know, Christian fiction or aspiring authors, anything that comes to mind? Well, I like to talk about, you know, people who want to write, because like you said, a lot of people who listen to these kinds of conversations will feel like I've got a book inside of me. I can take you. So I've taken you to three places today, the interstate, <laughs> uh, my grandmother's kitchen, and I'll take you to a bookstore in Chicago mm. uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I felt like, oh, I really I feel like I want to write something, but I don't know if I can do this. Mm. Uh, take you to the bookstore in Chicago where I would stand and I would say, one day I'm going to have a book and it's going to be in this window. I just I, That was a dream that I had. One day I'm going to have a book that's going to be in this window. But it was so far off because, you know, I do radio. You can't write. People in radio can't write, right? So I spent years in the 808 section of the library. Uh, I found Jerry Jenkins and I said, hey, you know, can you help me do this? And he did. And I sent query letters, and I started writing for our local newspaper, just this little weekly column that I had in the local newspaper to get me in the process of writing every week. And in 1995 then, years after I'd had this dream, this first book of mine was published. And I opened up the, the big box of all the books that were in there, and I looked at it, and I pulled it out. And my wife was there, and my kids were there, and I looked at that, and I thought... When can the next one come out? Mm. I'll be I'll be satisfied when the second one comes out. And I've that's happened to me 75 times or so now, <laughs> and I'm still got that same feeling. You know, when the ne the next one is going to be the you know, um, so there. If you have this thing inside of you that says, I really feel like I've got a story in me. I really I really think I've got a book in me. Don't spike that, but also don't rush it because it may take years. It may take 10 years or even more to get this thing that's inside out. But don't let the, the fact that there are a lot of books out there, uh, a lot of people who have published, or people who can write better than you, don't let that hold you back. Because, yes, that's true, but there's only one you. 
And if God has given you the story and if he's given you this desire, then go ahead and, and be faithful to that and write as well as you possibly can the story that God has given you and let him take it and run with it. Mm. Beautifully Great. said, Chris. Yeah. Now I feel like I want to go write a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <see? laughs> yes. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Both, both Adam and I are really honored to be able to have some time with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, your newest book is The Promise of Jesse Woods, and people can go to your website, which is chrisfabry.com, or Correct. find you on social media, and check yep. out your other books, or go to tyndale.com and find it there, or wherever books are sold. Or wherever books are sold. Thanks for your interest and for the conversation. Great questions today. Yes, of course. Have a great day, Chris. You too, Joy and Adam. Thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.